Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Shreya Saxena, who is an assistant professor of electrical and computer engineering at the University of Florida. Her research focuses on the interface of statistical inference, recurrent neural networks, control theory, and neuroscience. Welcome, Shreya. Thank you so much, Gil, for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with a review article you have from 2019 entitled Towards a Neural Population Doctrine, in which you say across neuroscience, large-scale data recording and population-level analysis methods have experienced explosive growth, while the underlying hardware and computational techniques have been well-received. We focus here on the novel signs that these technologies have enabled. So this is a this is a topic of great interest for me also, Shreya. Um, so this is so you're sort of looking at the intersection of neuroscience and computer science. Yes, exactly, um, exactly. So the computational mechanisms of how neural activity is uh, encoded and can be decoded into behavior. That's exactly what I consider in this review article as well as in my research. Yeah, so and obviously, as you know, neural nets, uh, neural networks have been around for from the 60s, I believe. And uh, there is a lot more interest in artificial neural networks. Uh, more recently, there was some uh, mathematical progress, but uh, more importantly, uh, cheaper computers and more memory uh, have made these things uh, more usable now. Uh, but, but your research is a sort of using artificial neural networks to trace back uh, what might be happening in the brain. Uh, could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, my research focuses on both the utility of artificial neural networks to um, help us in just building better models to decode behavior, as well as uh, really trying to figure out what are the parallels between these artificial neural networks and how the brain computes? Um, so these are sort of two um, sub, almost separate questions, uh, but, but they are, there are lots of intersections between them, of course. 
Yeah, so so are there are there any parallels? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah, that's a good question. So there's a lot of research in the last, um, especially in the last decade or so, of what, how we can best understand uh, the decoding and encoding mechanisms in the brain. So, for example, this was kind of jump-started in the um, in the visual neuroscience uh, domain, where um, researchers uh, basically built artificial neural networks to go from uh, images directly to uh, classification of these images, and then post-talk after training these artificial neural networks, compared the, the activity to the neural, the neural activity that um, was recorded when a, a primate, a non-human primate was doing the same task. So these are the kinds of uh, goal-directed networks that people are considering. Uh, researchers, including myself, um, uh, are considering for trying to understand how uh, the brain might be actually performing the same kinds of computations as artificial neural networks. Um, so the same kinds of things, um, the same kinds of principles are we're analyzing in motor neuroscience. So again, uh, using goal-directed networks to go directly from um, a hypothesized input to, for example, the motor cortex, um, and then these networks are actually trained on that uh, to go from that hypothesized input to the uh, to the observed behavior of the subjects. And so these networks then can be again uh, compared to the actual neural activity that we also that uh, collaborators record um, in non-human primates, and we can figure out the parallels uh, in this kind of a way. Yeah, so, so you said neural populations are understood to be the essential unit of computation in many brain regions. Um, so um, the, the artificial neural networks, if you do supervised machine learning um, type of use case, you have labeled cases, you, you have back propagation, and you're training the network. Uh, does the brain do anything like that? Um, unfortunately, no. Um, there are. That's where some of the training aspect is a whole other um, is a whole other ball game. How to actually implement uh, biologically plausible learning? That's that's not something I consider in my research yet. But that is a line of research that is a, that is actively being pursued. Okay. So so when you say goal directed um, neural public neural network, what do you mean? Right. So here I mean basically that the neural network is trained to do basically the same thing that uh, a subject, an experimental subject, um, is trained to do. So if the subject is classifying images on a screen, then uh, you know they, their eyes take in that image and then uh, somewhere in the brain they are actually able to identify what that image is and then they um, push a button for example to be able to 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 classify that as either you know, a bus or a car or some kind of an object so somewhere in the brain this processing is happening um, so uh, people actually train neural networks to do exactly that same thing so go from an image to a classification of that image. So that's kind of the goal of the brain. And so that's why it's kind of called the goal-driven network approach. Um, does, that, okay. does that make sense? Yeah, so um, in an experimental setting, you, you actually have a deep neural network 
uh, are trained to classify, let's say it's a binary classification, two images, uh, and the network can assign a probability big bucket, an image goes, and you have a subject, whether it's a, it's a human or, or a monkey or whatever, uh, doing the same thing, and you're, you're trying to trying to figure out what, what happens in the brain? Yeah, so the hypothesis is that, you know, a network trained to do the same task might actually have, uh, you know, might have representations in the network, um, which are, uh, which are also present in the brain. So that's, that's the post hoc sort of analysis or um, analysis of similarity between what is learned by the network and what uh, is present, the neural recordings that are present in the brain. So um, do we have, so do you, do you image the brain in this, in such a process to understand where the activity might be? How, how do you, how do you figure out what actually happens? Yeah, no, exactly. So um, me, my research is computational, uh, but I work with experimental collaborators who do these kinds of experiments. So for example, I work with um, a collaborator in the motor, uh, motor control area where um, again, so using these kinds of goal-driven approaches, um, there's a non-human primate performing an experiment um, at the same time, uh, the, their neural activity from the motor cortex is recorded as well as their muscle activity from um, intracortically. So, uh, sorry, um, so their muscle activity uh, is recorded at the same time. Uh, so basically, we can then fit networks or train networks to go uh, to, to directly produce this muscle activity. So that's the goal in the motor cortex, uh, in the motor cortex case. So basically these um, networks are trained to produce directly the muscle activity and we then compare the trained networks um, nodes and the nodes activity to the actual uh, recordings from the, uh, from the motor cortex of the non-human primate. Yeah, so, so this is the, the, the paper, your recent paper, uh, performance limitations in sensory motor control, trade-offs between neural computation and accuracy tracking fast movements. Uh, um, no, actually, no. this is uh, the one I'm just refer uh, just was referring to is um, is called motor cortex activity across movement speeds, when it's yeah. predicted by network level strategies for generating muscle activity. Yeah, yeah. And so let's talk about that paper. Uh, you say learned movements can be skillfully performed at different paces. Uh, what neural strategies produce this flexibility, you ask, can, we be, can they be predicted and understood by, by network modeling? So, um, so, so some kind of a task that is repeating, right? And, um, and biological systems, uh, what, what are we using here? These are monkeys, right? Uh, the experiment is That's with monkeys. Correct. And yes. so looking at um, how they, they sort of do this in different speeds and uh, how an artificial network might, uh, might do the same thing, right? Yes, exactly. So here the monkey was um, trained to produce uh, cycling movements at different speeds. So basically, they had a virtual landscape in front of them, so a screen where the, their location was changing according to, uh, their, the, according to how much they cycled um, on the, using their limb. And so they were actually tracking the target that was moving in this virtual landscape 
and the target was moving at different speeds. So the monkey was also producing these movements at different speeds. And the question here was how do we best understand how the motor cortex can actually produce these movements, um, produce varied muscle activity at different speeds. And the key here is also to realize that the muscle activity necessarily has to change across different speeds. I mean, think about when you are uh, riding a bicycle um, and you're just cycling at different speeds. When you speed up, you don't just move faster, you also contract your muscles in different amplitudes. So your, the, um, your muscle activity doesn't just, you know, uh, have the same pattern, but shorter. It actually changes um, much, you know, very differently in these different speeds. Yeah, so, uh, so, so what, what are we learning? Uh, so so what, you say here, network solutions reflected the principle that smooth, well-behaved dynamics require low trajectory tangling and yielded quantitative and qualitative predictions. What, what do you mean by trajectory tangling? Yeah, that is um, a term that has been coined um, in a previous paper by the by the same last author as this paper. So the trajectory tangling here refers to um, a metric to uh, diagnose a system's robustness to noise. So um, and and really how autonomous the system is. So you can think of um, a, a system that is being, uh, let's say it's being driven by inputs. Uh, so if it's being driven by inputs, it will um, it will basically just follow the same, or, or really uh, follow the same trajectories as what the input directs it to, but it will not have as many recurrent dynamics. So, um, right. And, and so this metric really just um, quantifies that intuition that how much of the dynamics of the, of the uh, network are recurrent and how much how many how many are input driven or um, noise driven. Yeah, so these are recurrent networks, right? That that you're using here. That's correct. Yes. And so, uh, so what are we finding? Uh, as you mentioned, it is it is quite complex uh, to to do a task at different speeds. Um, it, it is not just repeating things. It's almost like a different task when you do things in different speeds, right? So what are we learning from the monkey experiment, uh, how the brain does it? Yeah, so right, it is quite complicated because it's while the muscle activity does have to change considerably while going at different speeds, there has to be still somewhere in the brain that, that includes these different muscle activities in a very... Um, in a in a way that is um, that is quite simple at the end of the day because once you learn a movement at one speed you have to be able to generalize it to other speeds you should be able to go as fast as you want to once you have learned that movement and so there has to be somewhere in the brain that can take that that you know given a speed um, input like how fast do you want to go it has to be able to generate this varied muscle activity. And so we, um, we basically trained neural networks to do this exact task and you know, basically found that the neural networks that are trained to do this task actually um, resemble quanti 
you know, quantifiably as well as qualitatively, they resembled uh, the ne neurons in the motor cortex that, um, that were recorded while the same task was going on. And so we think that, uh, that the motor cortex and surrounding regions and recurrently connected regions are the ones that are actually responsible for doing this, uh, for making this transformation. Yeah, so that, that's very interesting, uh, Shaya. So you say here responses support the hypothesis that the dominant neural signals reflect not muscle activity, but network level strategies for generating muscle activity. So, so if I understand this correctly, you learn a task and then uh, once you learn it, you, you can generalize uh, that task at, at varying speeds, but both uh, artificial networks as well as the, the monkeys are able to do that. Yes, exactly. That's right. Um, so if you learn a task at one speed and then you just want to speed it up, you need somewhere in the brain that can encode for that transformation. And that's exactly what the networks were able to do. And in a very similar way, the neurons are also able to do from the motor cortex. So, I mean, in, in the biological system, we can observe um, how, how the monkey is doing it. Uh, so there has to be signals traveling from the brain to the muscles, uh, and, and then you have contract the muscle and so on. How do you how do you replicate that in an RNN? Um, yeah, the RNN here is uh, right. So it's a recurrent neural network that is uh, that takes in the speed input and generates the muscle activity. So that's exactly what we hypothesize the motor cortex, um, the output of the motor cortex is the very muscle activity. Um, so that's exactly what we try to replicate using networks. So the muscle activity though, uh, when you send some signals to the muscles, um, it, it is not quite deterministic, right? There could, be, there could be noise, there could be some stochastic aspects to it. So how do we, uh, do you see that in in an artificial network? Yeah, so it all depends on how you train it, right? Um, so yes, we do input noise and the network's nodes while we are training such that it uh, learns a robust solution. Um, so yes, we do have to take that into account uh, while training the networks. Yeah. Uh, you say also neural population trajectories share their organization not with muscle trajectories, but with network solutions. Um, and so, so essentially all the computations uh, is, is in that neural population, right? And it's basically sending a signal uh, to the muscles. And at that point, that is fairly mechanistic. There, there is nothing much happening. In that, uh, in that communication. Right, um, so one can kind of very nicely see this in experiments where, um, where the neural activity at the last stages before it gets uh, transformed into muscle activity is quite deterministic in nature. So there is not as much stochasticity there um, but, but right, but in the neural populations activity themselves, we do see some stochasticity. So that's exactly what we model in the recurrent nodes. Um, but to come back to your question about the dominant, uh, the dominant um, signals in the, in the brain and the motor cortex that we see, right? So those are actually, um, you know, very surprisingly, those are actually not the output signals. So, the, you know, one can imagine that in the motor cortex, 
um, if we do train it to reproduce muscle behavior, uh, or, or if we are um, recording the muscle behavior at the same time, we, we might see that the motor cortex neurons are just very much uh, like the single muscle activity. So you know, one neuron might be uh, might be quantitatively and qualitatively very similar to you know one muscle, but we're not actually seeing that. We're actually seeing that the recurrent nodes and the recurrent activity in the motor cortex is the dominant uh, sort of signal in, in the motor cortex. Yeah, so th this may have some implications for diseases too, right? Um, is that something that you have looked into? Um, Parkinson's and, you know, things like that. Right. So, um, right. So the mechanisms of how this activity is generated and, and transformed into, uh, into muscle activity, yes, that has many implications for, uh, for rehabilitation and, and uh, also how things go wrong in, in disease models. So I looked at that a little bit more in another paper, uh, which, um, from uh, the, the first one that you were mentioning of performance limitations. Yeah. Right, so there I look actually at spiking neural networks where we are hypothesizing, you know, we're basically uh, quantifying the effect of neural information transfer and uh, the dynamics of the musculoskeletal system and quantifying the their effect on how fast we can move. So basically, um, the, the speeds at which you can move is, is just basically determined by these, um, by these factors. And so we, this is uh, uh, basically, we are right, quantifying how fast we can move using uh, these building blocks. Mm. And here, right, sorry. <laughs> I was yeah. gonna connect it to, yeah. to the disease model. It's a little deeper into that, uh, Shaya. So we'll take a quick break and when we come back, we'll talk about that paper. Great, thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we're back, uh, Shreya, we are talking about uh, the similarities between artificial neural networks and and the brain, the neural populations in the brain, and a lot of the work that you have done in this area, um, many of them actually indicate, uh, if I understand this correctly, Shreya, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that artificial neural networks like recurrent neural networks uh, seem to behave uh, reasonably similar to um, biological systems or brains of monkeys, for example, and uh, how they learn tasks, uh, whether they could do tasks in different speeds and so on. You have another paper um, just came out, Performance Limitations in Sensor motor Sensory Motor Control, Trade-Offs Between uh, Neural Computation and Accuracy in Tracking Fast Movements. Uh, so here you say the ability to move fast and accurately track moving objects is fundamentally constrained by the biophysics of neurons and dynamics of the muscles involved. Yet the corresponding trade-offs between these factors and tracking motor commands have not been rigorously quantified. 
that makes a that makes a lot of intuitive sense. Um, I guess from an evolutionary perspective, um, uh, both the predator and the prey uh, <laughs> required this, right? They had to essentially uh, move fast and and change direction and so on. And so th- th- this might be something that uh, that we picked up very very early. I would think. Yeah, that's a good hypothesis. I'll have to defer to an evolutionary uh, behavioral researchers to to really um, to really answer that question. But it, but yes, I mean basically, you know, in predators and prey, all tend to, for example, take a cheetah chasing a gazelle or a wildebeest. You you see the gazelle or wildebeest often making quick side to side movements while uh, trying to escape the cheetah. And that's exactly what the cheetah, for example, has a little bit of a hard time doing. So, um, so yeah, you see this all the time in nature, that there are these fundamental limitations when it comes to tracking fast movements. And that's exactly what we quantify here as a function of the neural system and the musculoskeletal system. Yeah, so um, it, it makes, you know, sort of, uh... Physical sense um, when you have fast movements, you, you you have to process it, and then you have to send signals to the muscles. And so, mm-hmm. so you say here that we we use feedback control principles to quantify performance limitations of the sensory motor control system (SCS) to track fast periodic movements. Uh, so, so what is a feedback? So, so what what is the what is the system that you're talking about? Right. So, you know, you, we have to um, always remember that we are not just working in, a, in an open loop. We are actually integrating sensory signals all the time uh, and, and converting those into action. So the environment is very much in this closed loop while we are especially considering tasks like tracking the signal that is moving. And so, so that's what we consider here, that we have um, that we have some kind of uh, sensory information coming back that is being transformed into, into you know, through, through the neural system, through the neurons, we are actually transforming um, our sensory signals into motor commands. And so that's kind of the feedback control uh, that, we're, that we're modeling here. And uh, so, so, right, so that's, that, taking that into account, we, we come up with, uh, sort of uh, quantifiable bounds on how fast we can actually track a moving object. And so this is also an artificial neural network that that you're creating? Well, in the broadest of senses, uh, yes, it's a spiking uh, model of, of um, how we might be, how the brain might be uh, transforming these signals. It's not, yeah. it's not the modern <laughs> neural, the recurrent neural network architecture, but it's, it's basically a linear dynamical system, so still dynamical um, in nature, and uh, that's being transformed into spiking activity through uh, biologically-based um, neuro, neural models. Yeah, so, so I don't know much about this, Shreya, but uh, there, so there has been some interest in the spiking neural networks, right? Um, uh, you know, uh, it seems to sort of model biological systems more closely. So, so what is the difference there? What do you mean by a spike? 
Yeah, spike is uh, what we know of how a neuron transmits information. So if uh, so, the, the signal that is coming in from other neurons to one specific neuron is basically, um, uh, you know, to a close approximation, integrated. And then once it reaches a threshold, it emits a binary uh, electrical pulse that is then transmitted to the next neuron over. And so this binary uh, zero or one um, signal that we call a spike. So when it's uh, a one, it is, the neuron is spiking. When it's a zero, there's no spike. And you talk about a few observations here. One of them, you say linear models of the SES fail to predict undesirable phenomena, including skipped cycles, overshoot and undershoot, produced when tracking signals in the fast regime while nonlinear pulsatile control models can predict such undesirable phenomena. Um, and so if you, if you have a task and you, you sort of weight the speed of that task, uh, when you reach some speed, I would imagine, um, we won't be able to keep up, right? We'll, we'll skip and we'll have overshoot and undershoot. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So we see very clearly when we are uh, doing tasks that, that, that basically if we're trying to track a signal, we will be quite good at it until a certain speed is reached. And then after that, we'll start seeing these kinds of undesirable phenomena. So we'll start skipping cycles. We will start um, you know, really going, uh, creating a lot of errors, very specific kinds of errors. And so that's exactly the phenomena that we're trying to quantify using spiking, uh, you know, Spiking networks of neural activity. Yeah. So, so mechanistically, what 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 happens there, Shreya? So, is, is it um, is there some sort of a feedback that needs to go back and, and say, so you know, suppose I take an action, the brain needs to know that action has been taken, right? So there is there's some, I guess some there could be some latency in that. Is that is that sort of the the limit here? Right. So, yeah, no. And, and there are latencies everywhere. Um, so including your sort of how fast uh, you, the latency to actually visualize where you are and where the goal is. So there's a latency involved there. There's a latency involved in this, in the neural activity itself as it transmits the information. And then finally, there's a latency by the muscles to actually really um, create that action. So, so we model in the dynamics, you know, different parts of this, and uh, it's 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 basically an it's it's basically a phenomenon that happens due to all the different parts. We have to take into account all of them, um, and that's uh, that's really how we get to this kind of a limit of how fast we can go. Yeah, yeah, I know that you're not doing research in this area, but it'll be very interesting to see. I guess the data uh, is tough to get, but you know any sort of longitudinal data that clearly mm -hmm. the prey or the predator would have had some advantages if they could continue to reduce that latency and continue to go faster, right? So I wondered mm -hmm. over time if animals gotten better at this. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I would I would hypothesize that they have, and we see this in sports all the time. You know, when when, when we look at Olympics, for example, you know the 
the kinds of feats that we can do are just getting better and better, um, which is, I know, different from the predator-prey model, but it kind of gives us an idea of, of how we are getting better over time and you know, over, over generations. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I would argue that that's, that's definitely a very interesting thing to examine. Um, the other thing I wanted to sort of, uh, you know, coming back to your previous question about uh, modeling and analyzing um, disease activity using these kinds of models. So uh, just to sort of um, give a background, I mean, when, you know, in, um, in Parkinson's disease or people have a stroke, for example, you know, their, their, uh, their movements are affected to a large degree and the the prevailing thing that we see actually in our movements is that their movements are slower. So mm -hmm. in Parkinson's, there might be tremors as well, but you know, on top of that, their movements are generally very much slower. Um, and so to be able to restore movement speeds, we can actually um, we can actually use models such as these in order to design compensators, for example. Um, at either the musculoskeletal level or the or the neural level, in order to um, to help people go faster. Mm. Yeah, that, that's that's really interesting. So, uh, uh, like you mentioned, in a stroke or or progressive Parkinson's disease, uh, all the issues are in the in the neurons, right? Um, it it mm -hmm. is sort of the the firing of the neurons that that uh, that got affected. Exactly. So here, by modeling it as a system, as a closed-loop system, we're taking into account, you know, the neural activity and the and the and how these diseases actually affect the neural activity. And um, but, however, because it's a system, we can think about even if the neural activity is affected, we can um, try to design compensators at the musculoskeletal level in order to reach the similar um, movement speeds that would uh, have happened without the neural, uh, the neural um, diseases. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So if you can predict, um, you know, you said the, the, the signals are somewhat slower. So if you can systematically predict that, like you say, you can then compensate uh, at the muscular level somehow, right? To, to take right, out. Right, exactly. Yeah. Has that been done? Um, I mean, we are examining this um, as well as collaborators are also examining this exact question. So uh, stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really exciting. Uh, you say here also, Shreya, that we derive an analytical upper bound on frequencies that the SES model can reliably track before producing such undesirable phenomena uh, that we talked about, such as skipping. So an analytical upper bound. So it's is it a bit like when you hit that frequency, things start to break. Till then, things are okay. So it's a sort of a binary breakpoint. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And so, so so this again goes back to what you were talking about: the latency in in different parts of the system, and it can only handle. Uh, some some frequency, but it's kind of interesting though, given the complexity of the system that you can actually derive sort of a binary breakpoint. Um, is there more to that more to that idea? Yeah, I mean, so behaviorally, we do see this kind of uh, binary breakpoint 
uh, you know, when when we are looking at how, for example, if I just tell you to track a signal that is uh, moving periodically, there will you will reach a frequency at which after which you just cannot do it. So it's usually quite binary, you know, so, until that frequency things are going mostly okay, and after that you start skipping cycles, you start um, displaying these undesirable phenomena. And so um, that's exactly what we're trying to model in this kind of using these kinds of models. And uh, so, yes, we make approximations when modeling. Of course, the system is way too complicated to model completely uh, mechanistically. But um, using these kinds of approximations, we can still identify these kinds of um, breakpoints as well. That's exactly what we model. Yeah, I was also thinking, Shay, I don't know if it's possible, you know, there might be some diagnostic capabilities here too, right? So if, if you have progressive Parkinson's disease, if you can pick it up early um, uh, through, you know, some sort of uh, observations, uh, then perhaps you can intervene early uh, or slow down the progression. Or if you have strokes, for example, minor strokes that lead to, uh, lead to um, uh, movement issues, uh, do, do you see some diagnostic type capabilities that you could build? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I think that sounds exactly sort of, uh, you know, before the person might be even able to tell that there's something uh, wrong, we might be able to uh, exactly apply these kinds of tests and try to try to get at that question. Yeah, that'd be really exciting. So, so in conclusion, uh, Shreya, um, I know that your lab is doing a lot of work in this area. So if you look forward five, 10 years, where do you think we are most likely to make a huge impact? You know, I, uh, it, this, this was really interesting to me because I, I would have thought uh, <laughs> uh, the artificial neural networks uh, won't get anywhere close to how the, how the brain uh, actually sends the signals, but that is not what you're finding. So, so uh, where do you think you will take it in the next five, 10 years? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, so as you mentioned near the beginning of this interview, we really see the capabilities of artificial neural networks increasing um, over time. And that's, that's really helpful in order to analyze, uh, to understand neural activity and how it how it might be uh, computing and how our brains might be computing. But I think um, one important thing to keep in mind over the next uh, you know, many years is also that it's in tandem with a dynamical body. You know, we have to kind of bring in the, uh, the body dynamics when modeling, uh, when trying to understand the brain. It's, it's you know, our limbs are, are the interface between the brain and and our, the actual world. So modeling that very uh, concretely, I think will be really helpful to understand uh, not just the limitations of the brain, but how do we actually move forward in rehabilitation as well as understanding of how the neurons are computing. And this can also then have many interfaces with robotics. You know, how can we better uh, design these machines in order to um, perform the same way that we do? Yeah, a lot of companies seem to be making a um, uh, lot of developments in the area of robotics now. And, and so, like you say, um, the, this boundary, uh, you know, there's a lot of work in sort of understanding the neuroscience aspects of the brain 
uh, and the mechanics of the body is sometimes it's a little bit separate from it, right? Uh, and what you're yes, saying. Yes, exactly. It's overlooked yeah. a lot of the times, but I think it's very important um, to be able to understand the neural systems. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, uh, Shreya. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. It was really great to talk to you. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.